0: And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Tuesday, March 21st, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Robert O'Shaughnessy. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, why federal employees are watching the political landscape now more than ever. Plus, the Agriculture Department promotes new ways to manage and use a very old resource. Those stories much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, for decades, the National Cybersecurity Protection System, known as Einstein, has formed the center of federal cyber defenses. Now the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency is looking to move beyond Einstein with a near half-billion-dollar program in its latest budget request. Here with more federal news networks, Justin Doubleday. And they're asking for almost $500 million for something they called CAD. What is their plan for the future of Einstein, Justin?
1: Yeah, they're seeking about $425 million in the 2024 budget for this cyber analytics and data system, uh, better known as CADS. Maybe they'll come up with something a little more catchy in the future. But CADS is supposed to be a uh, what they call a scalable analytic environment that integrates different data sets and provides analysts with visualization tools and other capabilities. The budget explains how this is all a part of the restructuring of the, the Einstein program that's been in place, as you said, since 2003 to really defend federal agency networks from cyber threats. Chris Comiskey is a former senior official at DHS. And he said the budget really answers some big questions about the future of Einstein.
2: The notion was that Einstein eventually would have to turn into something else. And I think we have our answer now. I think that the short answer is that Einstein or NCPS as we have known it in the federal space for the last 15 to 20 years is turning into something much different, which is a warehouse capability with huge amounts of data that are being collected from multiple sources that becomes an engine uh, for analysis that will hopefully lead to quicker response and detection of threats by CISA.
0: And so Einstein then will still monitor federal networks as it has been. They're up to Einstein. I think version three is the current, but there sounds like they're adding to that with new data sources other than their own sensors. So what kind of data are they adding?
1: Yeah, I asked CISA that question. Eric Goldstein, CISA's executive assistant director for cybersecurity reached out. He said they're going to integrate public and commercial data feeds Sys' own sensors, such as endpoint detection and response, the protective domain name system sensors that kind of monitors web traffic across federal networks, Cis's vulnerability scanning service, which has thousands of enrolled organizations across the country, and then other data that is shared by public and private partners. And that's growing with, you know, new incident response requirements that critical infrastructure groups will soon have to start following. So it's supposed to be a single data repository for Sys' cyber analysts, Which is important. Uh, Goldstein told me right now a lot of those analysts have to manually kind of compare data from one source to another to kind of figure out what might be going on out in the cyber world. And this new system is intended to kind of give them a single place to go multiple data streams to then compare it.
0: In many ways, this is a mirror of what we're hearing a lot of agencies talking about doing, which is to gain a earlier handle on what might be threatening their networks by going to public data sources when they buy software. The whole bomb thing has to do with comparing the bomb with known vulnerability databases. So this kind of trend we're seeing across the government. But Einstein also kind of got knocked because it didn't detect solar winds campaign a couple of years ago. Is that part of the impetus here?
1: It's a little bit of a story here. I think the Einstein program, it was actually noted even before the SolarWinds campaign that one of its limiting factors is that it has to have seen and analyzed malicious traffic before it can block it rather than being able to actually identify new malicious traffic, zero days or supply chain attacks like SolarWinds. And that shortcoming really became a major focus for policymakers in the wake of the SolarWinds campaign. CISA officials defended Einstein. They said it, it worked as intended and it wasn't intended to detect that kind of attack. But a OIG report, an Inspector General report that came out earlier this month, kind of foot-stamped the whole debate by saying, well, the SolarWinds campaign demonstrated the need for something like CADS, better network visibility and threat identification technology. Here's Comiskey again.
2: There was a lot of thought before Solar Winds around, you know, what comes next after Einstein. I think that was only accelerated by Solar Winds because on the hill they're like, "Well, why didn't Einstein catch this?" The answer was, well, it's really not designed to detect and then have the tools in place to then act accordingly. And so Now this particular system that they're redesigning comes in the wake of solar winds and will put them in a much better position, I think, to do critical analysis in a timely fashion that will help them act more swiftly.
0: And will Einstein go away or will it live on in its core function of monitoring networks and still giving warnings of things happening now, zero days, and so on?
1: Yeah, so portions of Einstein, uh, including the core infrastructure infrastructure, Analytics and information sharing functions will transition to this new CADS program that will then be built out from there. And then the Einstein intrusion detection and intrusion prevention capabilities will remain in place at least through 2024. CISA is requesting another $67 million to continue operating those tools in 2024. But CISA also has some uh, plans to make there in terms of decommissioning the legacy Einstein email filtering tools and tr- transitioning to commercial services, and then also taking into account agencies' expanded use of cloud technologies. That's another big intrusion detection question that CISA has to answer in the coming year.
0: I give them till 2027, realistically. If they say 24, it's gonna be 28. Well, I don't know. Maybe I'm getting cynical in my old age. And is there an acquisition plan? How are they going to spend this $425 million if they get well, it? Well, we
1: don't know that yet. Right. If they get it, they still have to convince lawmakers of their plan. Congress has is, is generally been amenable to what CISA has put forward with uh, a lot of their cyber programs. So we'll see what they do here. But actually inside the building, inside DHS, they're moving toward... A program accountability and risk management review, which is kind of when big DHS rubber stamps CISA's plan for CADS, and that's supposed to happen by the end of this month. And then we'll see what their plan is for acquiring it. Uh, Comiskey told me he thinks it'll be have some heavy involvement from industry. Another industry source noted to me that this is going to come with a lot of engineering and software development tools. That's kind of what this new CADS program is intended to be, is kind of a hub for when CISA analysts say they need this new tool or analysis software that's what this CADS program will provide. So it'll be interesting for industry to track this as well.
0: well 429000000 million, that'll make it a market all by itself, really, for a lot of small businesses and some of those big integrators. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday, thanks so much. Hey, you got it, Tom. And check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, the Agriculture Department promotes new ways to manage and use a very old resource. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammin here on Federal News Network. You'd think everything wood can be used for has been thought of, but wood, considered a renewable resource, has a lot of life left. The Agriculture Department is running a competitive grant program to come up with new ways to manage, promote, and use wood. Here with details, the Forest Service's Assistant Director for Wood Innovations, Brian Brashaw. Mr. Brashaw, good to have you with us.
4: Good morning. Thank you.
0: And you are speaking to us from the forested areas of the middle of the country, too, aren't you?
4: I am. I'm based out of Duluth, Minnesota, but I work for our Washington, D.C. national office.
0: All right. So tell us about this grant program. First of all, what are you specifically trying to do here for, I guess, wood that is grown for the purpose of being harvested?
4: Yeah, we know that having markets for wood products really helps landowners manage their forests. Uh, having Financial impact and, and financial connections really supports that forest management in its federal lands, state lands, tribal lands, and private lands. So our grant programs are really geared to support the development of markets for wood products and for renewable wood energy.
0: And outside of home construction, which I guess uses a lot of pine, isn't that what two-by-fours and stuff are made from, and plywood, and then I guess oak, is the other big one. What are What are the major woods that are used for various products in the country?
4: You know, we have a really robust hardwood lumber industry in the country that really supports industrial applications, things like railroad ties and pallets and crating, and then furniture and flooring and, you know, all the things that, that decorate our homes. The softwood industry is really across the country, the U.S. South, the Pacific Northwest, and then the Northeast and, and, and Lake States. Most of that lumber goes into construction applications for residential building products and a new emerging building material called cross-laminated timber that can be used for taller buildings. And then the third really part of the wood products sector is engineered panel products. So those are things like oriented strand board or plywood that you that you mentioned or referenced.
0: All right, interesting. So this grant program is going to what types of organizations? What are you looking to develop or promote here through these grants?
4: Yeah, we're really trying to support markets for wood products, new markets, innovative markets, getting wood in places that it hasn't been before. So the kinds of uh, folks that are avail- interested and available uh, to apply are for-profits, not-for-profits, states, tribes. It's really a wide um, uh, set of applications that can be received for, this, uh, for these two programs. There's the Wood Innovations uh, Program, and then the second one is the Community Wood uh, Facilities Grant Program.
0: Yeah, what is a community wood facility? Sounds like a fancy word for forest.
4: <laughs> well, it's, it's our community wood energy. It, it focuses on our community wood facilities program really has two emphasis. One is these are shovel-ready projects that can support expansion or new facilities. It really has a primary emphasis on small scale community wood energy. So we're talking about small campus, maybe a school campus that might be heated using wood for heat, which is a very thermal use or very efficient use uh, for wood. And then we also have the ability to invest in facilities, innovative wood products facilities. That might be things like cross laminated timber this this large thick panel that can be used to construct taller buildings or other innovative wood products like biochar or other new cellulose based nanomaterials that might be coming to the marketplace so that's what the community wood program is really all about is to support renewable wood energy facilities that are going to produce heat at a district or small scale and then also Uh, innovative wood products, processing uh, facilities, and equipment.
0: And just a question on that wood for heating. Having spent some time in New England many years ago, everybody had a wood stove. It was kind of a fad that they came back into existence sometime around the late 1960s, early 1970s. But they do produce smoke, and it's kind of an old-fashioned way in this age of solar this and battery that. So what are the issues with wood as a heating fuel
4: these days? So what I would say is that our renewable wood energy sector, these aren't your grandfather's old wood stoves. These are clean, efficient, safe burning technologies that really are available for installation for homes, but also for larger scale applications. And that's where it really is an important market outlet for for wood products that don't have another home. So these are clean, efficient, and highly regulated products that we're supporting.
0: Sounds like that particular application could boost maybe steam production again, say in heating or that type of thing.
4: It does create, you know, there's different ways to create heat and, and steam is certainly one of those options.
0: We're speaking with Brian Brashaw, he's assistant director for wood innovations at the U.S. Forest Service. And so the grantees will produce what? Ideas? I mean what what is what do we get out of these grants to these various organizations?
4: So our two our two grant programs really support a wide range of applications that that help us bring wood products to markets. So in our wood innovation grants, those are typically grants that are about $300,000. And those really support the establishment of wood energy teams within states, innovative wood products teams, kind of a cross-sector that can focus on the market development within a state. But we're also providing funding to support introduction of new engineered wood products like mass timber or cross-laminated timber, Think of that as two-by construction lumber that's flat laminated into thick panels. We'll provide and support engineering or feasibility analysis for tall buildings. So, for instance, one of the projects that we supported with the Wood Innovation Grant was the University of Idaho's new mass timber basketball arena. Just an, an incredible showcase for the value of wood products uh, in, a, in a university setting. The tallest timber building in the world is 25 stories. That
0: was my next uh,
4: 19, question. <laughs> 19 stories is uh, is is. It's in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. It's known as the Ascent Building, and we supported that early stage front end design, engineering, and feasibility, which leads to, in that case, you know, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars of investments as projects go forward. There's just a whole range of projects from biochar. Uh, market development or standard development or equipment purchases that are eligible under these uh, under the Wood Innovation Grants Program.
0: And what about fire performance in tall buildings? Because I imagine if that takes hold, that's the first question people will have.
4: It it certainly is. And and a large cross-section or large members. So this might be large columns or beams that are horizontal. And then you've got your floor systems, which also becomes the ceiling of the floor above. You know, these large cross-section members perform very, very well. Wood, as it burns, creates char. And as wood chars, it really slows down the, the combustion. So wood burns predictably. The Forest Service and our National Laboratory, which is the Forest Products Laboratory in Madison, Wisconsin, has really been a scientific backbone working with many, many partners to Look at building codes, to look at fire codes, to engage in these kinds of things. And I can tell you that the tall building in Milwaukee, the Milwaukee Fire Department was one of the first partners that was engaged in helping to assess and understand how these new building materials uh, fit into uh, in the, in the marketplace and into safety and into codes.
0: Well, the uh, fire that burned the White House in 1812 charred some of the main beams, yet they lasted in place until about 19, what was it, about 45 when they had to clear out and finally rebuild the place. So we do have that history there. And this is a really off-the-wall question. Any interest from what used to be known as Detroit, collectively, will you ever see maybe wooden cars again, some woody-sided wagons?
4: (laughs) You know, Henry Ford was a sawmiller way back in the day and was was really, you know, the wood products were, were there. There has been, over time, wood fiber composites that have been utilized in vehicles. And I do think that those kinds of unique, innovative applications are still coming. I think there's still quite a bit of work in some of the sectors in the automotive industry to uh, to incorporate wood because it is such a strong, lightweight material that offers a lot of benefits.
0: And finally, the deadline for people wanting grants
4: Yeah, so our application deadline, uh, we have $24 million available for the Wood Innovation Grant Program. We have $17 million available for the Community Wood, uh, which is really the Facilities Grant Program. Both of those applications close on March 23rd of, of next month.
0: All right, and we'll add that link to our posting of this interview. Brian Brashaw is Assistant Director for Wood Innovations at the U.S. Forest Service. I think you've got one of the great jobs, by the way, in the federal government. I love it. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, for contractors, the 2024 budget request doesn't quite add up. But first... Why federal employees are watching that political landscape more than ever. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.
3: Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
0: Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman. You're on Federal News Network. Many financial crises, a stubbornly bare stock market, no breakthroughs on Social Security solvency, the debt ceiling debate dragging out. No wonder federal employees worry, along with everybody else. For one point of view, we turn to the Vice President for Policy at the National Association of Active and Retired Federal Employees, John Hatton. John, good to have you back in studio.
5: Thank you for having me.
0: And people are concerned. I actually had a reader write to me asking, well, are TSP funds insured? Unfortunately, no. <laughs> Nobody's, uh, you know, investments are insured yet at least in this country, but I guess people are thinking about the budget now being right. dissected and pulled apart. Tell us more.
5: Well, the first opening salvo of the budget negotiations began with President Biden putting out his budget. And some of the more detailed parts of it. So that's just kind of a request to Congress for what they want for agency spending. It includes legislative proposals that, of course, would need congressional assent for those. What I think we're looking at is what's the next back and forth going to be with Congress? Do House Republicans and Senate Republicans come back with something that looks to cut spending much more than Biden's budget does? Does that include cuts to federal benefits? Where do the budget negotiations go from there is kind of what we'll be monitoring in this process? Right. And
0: that pay raise question is, I think, tantamount. I was talking to Senator Van Hollen, who, of course, is behind one of the backers of the FAIR Act. But if you dissect it, and this is something else a reader pointed out, that 8.7 percent, which is equally divided in the FAIR Act between base pay and locality pay, actually results in much less than an 8.7 percent raise, because 4.5 percent of it is only your locality pay. So, it's 4% of the locality pay, and the other is 4.7% of your base pay. And so, it doesn't really come out to 8.7% mathematically.
5: Well, I think it comes out, it depends on whether you get that average locality pay increase or not. And, and I think it is the 4.7% across the board, and then 4.7 percentage point increase in locality pay. So, some people might actually get more than that, and some people may get less. Now. Do I think that 8.7% is going to be enacted? No. Biden's budget included 5.2% for a pay raise. It said on average, I would expect that to be 4.7% across the board and a 0.5% average on locality pay. Now, if Congress does nothing, that will go into effect. The president puts out his alternative pay plan in August. He puts an executive order out in December. If Congress is silent in appropriations, whether it's a CR or full-year appropriations, that presidential pay raise will go through. And so we'll see if part of those budget negotiations, though, include some negotiation
0: over the pay raise. And for those that might be thinking of retiring or who are retired and they are still on the Federal Employee Health Benefits Program plans, there is the call now from OPM to look at Part D, which was never part of those plans because the federal plans were better than Medicare Part D in terms of the benefits there. Now that's been all sweetened up already by last year's legislation. Right. And so what are people thinking there?
5: We've seen that call letter from OPM and that encourages plans to integrate a prescription drug plan through Part D through something called an employer group waiver plan, which is something that private sector employers do for their retirees to provide drug coverage. And so we will have to see in the actual contracts and in the plans that are offered for the 2024 open season what the actual details look like. But I think it's clear that it's going in this direction. I would expect a lot of plans to offer this add-on. Now, the way it will work for people is that the guidance says your coverage needs to be equal or better through that Medicare Part D add-on to your existing plan. The other thing, it's not going to have an additional premium. So, people think, oh, am I going to have to go out and buy Part D? No, it'll just be integrated with your FEHB plan if you are a Medicare-eligible retiree. You will also have the option, according to OPM's guidance, potentially opt out of that because some people would face higher premiums due to their income.
0: Right. So, it's almost as if the supplemental plans long offered by different groups and AARP and so <laughs> forth, which put B and C together would, in effect, just pull in D also.
5: Yeah, so I think there might be two different ways the plans will go about it. One is that Medicare Advantage, where it combines A, B into kind of a C plan and D, or one that just adds on the Part D. So it gets very complicated. Again, we need to see the details of it. But with the legislative changes through the Inflation Reduction Act, there's a lot of benefits that accrue through Part D. One Medicare is going to be negotiating prescription drug prices. There's going to be a limit on out-of-pocket expenses to two thousand dollars. There's going to be limits on insulin costs. There's going to be limits on copayments for catastrophic coverage, and there's going to be limits on increases in premium growth. Plus, Part D already had manufacturer drug discounts. So there's a lot of benefits that by integrating with Part D can accrue to those FEHB plans and retirees in it. So I think overall people will benefit from this new development. But again, we need to see the details people need to be able to pay attention to what their options are in terms of what their costs may be based on their income, too.
0: Right, and you need that calculator on the desk to really do your homework, right? I was going to say slide rule, but I don't think anyone still uses those anymore. Yeah, I think there'll be a lot of
5: confusion and and a lot of decisions and a lot of personalization on this too.
0: So the best thing is never get sick and don't need drugs. (laughs) We're speaking with John Hatton. He's vice president of policy and programs at the National Association of Active and Retired Federal Employees joining me here in studio. And there is a lot of plus-up called for in the 2024 budget for OPM itself. Yeah, And OPM has been seen as a little bit of a backwater in terms of cleaning up the process of figuring out annuities so that you get it when you retire and not three or five or six months later and so on. What's your feeling about what OPM needs to do if they get all this money?
5: Well, they've included in the budget and in their budget justification to Congress that they want to do an online retirement application that they piloted and start to move towards a digital case management system. I think both of those things are really good ideas. Right now, a lot of cases come to OPM with errors, and so you can say, well, that's the agency's fault. They should have given the right information. But when you or I may go online and fill out an application, usually there's that little red asterisk, oh, you're missing this documentation, or you need to upload this file. So some basic processes that happen that we're used to don't really happen in the retirement process that make it slower and make it more difficult for OPM to process your cases. So it's not always their fault at that time. But if you make the entire process better, I think you can cut down on some of those delays.
0: So in other words, the delays don't necessarily originate with OPM because if someone worked for six different agencies, and it's common for people to work several places over their careers or they left government and came back, there's a lot of nitty-gritty, picky calculation you have to do down to pennies times periods of time according to the calculator for annuities.
5: Yeah. So it's, one, having the documentation from those different agencies. Sometimes, if they weren't carried over from one agency, then the next they might be at the National Archives in St. Louis, and so they have to get that. OPM may have payroll data, but they don't have all the personnel file data. So they need to get that. And sometimes it is OPM's processes are very paper-based, so they can improve that too through the digital case management. So there are a lot of things. One of the common errors that happens is there's not enough showing that you had five years of continuous coverage for FEHB, and you need that to have it in retirement. So there's a gap there. OPM can't process your retirement because it doesn't know if you have health benefits.
0: And also with respect to OPM and again talking with Senator Van Hollen the other day, will OPM and what's your sense if it should or what do people want OPM to say about some definitive policy on returning to the office or could the policy say it's up to individual agencies and then they could go about deciding what they want to do in D.C. and anywhere else in the country?
5: Yeah. A lot of it has been agency by agency. And there was just a congressional oversight hearing on OPM where there was a lot of consternation about bringing employees back to work from the Republican side of the aisle. And so, you know, I think there'll be a lot of pressure from Republicans on that, at least in the House side, even as there are clear benefits to some telework with cost savings on space and some productivity. Uh, But I do think it needs to be a case-by-case basis. And I think it's been approached that way for the most part by agency.
0: It seems like GSA needs to be a part of any of those discussions, because if you're going to consolidate leased space, that's a GSA thing. You're going to turn some of it over back to the landlords or whatever.
5: I mean, if you're going to say we're going to do telework and accrue cost savings from space, you certainly need to (laughs) incorporate GSA into that strategy.
0: Or give everyone a really big, big cubicle for when they do come (laughs) and you just share. You get the left when you're in, you get the right hand side when you're in. And I wanted to ask you about the Default Prevention Act. Yeah. And this is something that there's a bill by that name goes back many, many years.
5: Yeah. So, I mean, obviously right now we've hit the debt limit. And the Treasury is employing extraordinary measures to make sure the U.S. government doesn't default on payments on bonds, on Social Security benefits. The House Ways and Means Committee recently passed this Default Prevention Act, which would tier the priorities for payment in the case that those extraordinary measures are exhausted. So tier one is bond payments. Social Security, Medicare, Tier 2 is DOD payments and Veterans Affairs payments. Tier 3 is everything else. So if you're a federal retiree hoping for your federal retirement benefits, well, you're third in line behind a lot of other things, including DOD contractors. So we'll see if that gets a vote on the House floor. I don't expect it to pass Congress. But that's the type of thing you need to look at if we actually hit default. Who's actually getting paid? And I think it would be a disaster to have so many people that are owed money from the government not getting payment. That, to me, is default. It's not just not paying bondholders.
0: Right. Under that system, then, if the bondholders are first and DOD and VA second, then basically your annuity, your retirement benefit, your pay becomes the equivalent of a subordinated debenture.
5: Yeah. And so that's not an approach that we support. (laughs) So hopefully uh, there'll be a deal on the budget and the debt limit to prevent that.
0: John Hatton is vice president of policy and programs at the National Association of Active and Retired Federal Employees. As always, good to have you on.
5: Thank you for having me.
0: And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, for contractors, the 2024 budget request doesn't quite add up. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network.
2: This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome
0: back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. Federal contractors don't see a lot of room for growth after inflation in fiscal 2024, with a few large agencies actually requesting a reduction in funding relative to what was enacted this year. Stephanie Castro of the Professional Services Council joins us with a few observations. And before we get to that, though, Stephanie, I wanted to ask you about something a little bit more topical right now, and that is a new solicitation came out called T4NG2, Generation 2, from the Veterans Affairs Department, and there's a little consternation over that one.
3: Good morning, Tom, and thanks for having me. You know, T4NG2 stands for, for those in your listenership that don't know it, it's Transformation 21 Total Technology, Next Generation 2. So, of course, everyone calls it T four NG two because why wouldn't you? It is a ten year contract vehicle worth sixty to sixty one billion dollars. So there was a lot of heightened interest within the federal contracting community for obvious reasons. They did, however, as a follow on vehicle, kind of rush through, in our opinion, of the solicitation process. They had a couple of opportunities to comment on draft solicitations, the draft RFPs, but those turnaround times were about four business days each. And so what led us to conclude from that situation is that the Veterans Affairs Department wasn't particularly interested in a lot of meaningful industry feedback. And so the final solicitation came out here on March 14th. Proposals are due a month later on April 14th. And we've got a lot of folks in the contracting community worried about whether they're actually competitive. And I'll give you a couple of examples. One is the final solicitation sets up the small business and the veterans' employment opportunities to be gamed in the system. It is about a point system for this. So there are those who, small businesses, organic small businesses who want to go it alone, who who might not be able to compete in this way. And I think that might run counter to some of what the administration is trying to do with small businesses, which is to encourage them.
0: Well, how can they game the system or what's the point system that favors companies joining up with large companies, it sounds like?
3: Yeah, they are encouraging joint ventures and teaming arrangements. What I find interesting, and this is a direct quote from one of our member companies, is that you could drive a Mack truck through the requirements. You know, this is a Veterans Affairs solicitation focused on health information technology and customer experience. There's not a lot of mention of health IT and customer experience in the requirements. So we do wonder whether the contracting offices and evaluation offices are talking to the program managers about what they really need. The gaming comes into play when it's a point system and you got to figure out who you can partner with. And whether or not they have VA experience seems to be relatively immaterial.
0: So then do you expect there would be, I mean, the association would not do this, but I wonder if it could engender some pre-award protests. That's been known to happen with big IDIQs around here.
3: It's actually more the rule than the exception, I think. And I think you're exactly right, Tom. This does open itself up to protest. And so we'll have to see what happens in that landscape on that part of it.
0: And you mentioned there were a couple of short periods in which industry could comment. Is there evidence that any of the commentary that came in, I guess, eight days total, was incorporated into the final solicitation?
3: There were some tweaks made, but overall, when we look at the solicitation, we do wonder how much they actually incorporated. We're still waiting to see, or at least I'm waiting to see, the second round of Q&A and how they answered some of the questions that were posed. But overall, um, you know, this does look very similar to the previous versions. And we look forward to seeing how the VA evaluates the proposals when they get them. Of course, protests are always the sticky wicket for them.
0: All right. We're speaking with Stephanie Castro, Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. And continuing on the VA theme, it's getting under the president's request anyway for 2024, a 2.2% overall budget increase. That's among the skinnier increases we're seeing. And there's a couple of large departments that are actually getting decreases under the request. Again, anything could happen. But it shows a philosophical approach, if that's what you consider a budget. And you're concerned about the inflation effects in budgets of that nature.
3: We are, Tom, and thanks for bringing this up. You know, we hear a lot in the news about the defense budget and what's happening on that front. And we've got a lot of budget detail from the Defense Department so we can unpack that. On the civilian agency side, there's a really vast discrepancy among some of the agencies Overall, the administration is correct in saying civilian agencies are seeing a 6.2% increase over last year. And it looks like that might reflect a calculation of 2.4% inflation. And I would love 2.4% inflation at this point, um, because obviously over the last 12 months, we've seen it range from that to a high of some 9%. And so The increase of 6.2 across all the civilian agencies is not evenly spread. As you noted, the VA has roughly a 2.2% increase. It's not matching that inflation budget. So in real terms, you wonder, what exactly are they cutting here? There are some agencies that are seeing huge increases, EPA a 19% increase, USDA has a 14% increase. I will say some of the notable lows, transportation is seeing a 2.9% decrease. The administration may argue on that because they are moving some pieces of the discretionary budget or they're proposing to move some pieces into the mandatory column. And so when we're looking at a 2.9 percent decrease in discretionary, we got to factor in what they're trying to move to mandatory. So it's interesting to see what exactly is being played around with here. um, And I'm looking forward to seeing some of the budget details for the civilian agencies.
0: And what are you seeing in terms of labor rate possibilities for contractors, given that federal employees and so forth are scheduled for some kind of a decent raise anyway, 4 or 5 percent. We don't know what it'll end up being, but the president has indicated 5 percent or 5.2.
3: You know, Tom, thanks for bringing that up. I want to be clear that the Professional Services Council and our member companies are happy that the civilians and the military are getting a 5.2 percent proposed increase here. The problem that we're facing as a contractor community is that we're not seeing a similar increase in labor rates for contractors. This in essence tends to squeeze out an already stretched workforce when they can make more money on the commercial marketplace for labor than they can in contracts. And so when you're increasing pay for military and civilian, we are all for that, but we're not seeing a commentant or a comparable increase on the contractor side. And that really makes a tough labor market even tougher.
0: And some of these agencies that are getting large increases, you mentioned EPA, for example, National Science Foundation is getting a whopper of an increase, transportation down a little bit. Any sense of what types of professional services are going to be in demand and how that might differ at all from the current picture?
3: You know, we're seeing a lot of movement, Tom, on the cyber and the tech side. We talked, you and I, about the Technology Modernization Fund a while ago, and that is also seeing a proposed budget of $200 million dollars Uh, Last year, they proposed $300 million. And you may remember in the American Rescue Plan Act, TMF got bumped up a billion dollars. So we're seeing additional movement on the tech and the cyber side. If you look at the president's budget, the main document that was released, it mentions cyber 49 times. That's a really, really high number of times mentioning cyber. Looking at places like CISA, the the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency over at DHS, seeing a $3.1 billion budget for them, which is an increase. Of 145 million just for resilience. There's a lot of movement in that space, and so I know some of our member companies are looking very closely at what they can do in the IT, cyber, tech space to sort of leverage these opportunities.
0: And a final question on the Office of Federal Procurement Policy. There is no nominee yet for administrator there, and all this rulemaking is happening here and there on the FAR and so forth for some of the new climate reporting rules and, and so on for procurement. You'd like to see someone in there maybe orchestrating that.
3: Tom, the president has a number of nominations that are either still in the Senate under consideration, almost 100 over in the Senate, still waiting for a vote. He's got some 97 that he's not yet chosen a nominee, and three folks are waiting for a formal nomination. The administrator for the Office of Federal Procurement Policy is particularly interesting to the Professional Services Council because that is the person who will, you know, in, in theory at least, push the administration's, um, you know, regulatory, you know, ball down the field. And I'll say that in that the administration early on started talking about using acquisition as a catalyst, that was their catchphrase. And that is to say, to help advance diversity, equity, inclusion, to help advance climate change initiatives, et cetera. And so not having someone in that position with all the weight of being actually confirmed by the Senate is a little bit troubling. All that's to say, the OFPP acting administrator, Leslie Field, is wonderful. She's great, but she does lack the gravitas that comes with the Senate confirmation. And so I would hope that the administration, as they look to find additional nominees for these positions, would really prioritize getting someone in that slot permanently.
0: Stephanie Castro is Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. As always, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your shows. Be sure to register for Federal News Network's third annual DOD cloud exchange. It starts today and runs through Thursday. Learn the latest and most crucial developments in moving cloud services to the tactical edge. Day one, we hear from Deputy Defense CIO Lily Zalecki and Special Operations Command Chief Technical Officer Mark Taylor. Tomorrow, IT officials from DISA, the Army, and the Marine Corps. Register now at federalnewsnetwork.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder
1: made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder.
0: The Commerce Department's Commerce Acquisition for Transformational Technology Services, or CATS, multiple award IT services contract was supposed to be in support of small business. Instead, Commerce's $1.5 billion deal is demonstrating all that's wrong with federal efforts to support and grow the small business base. In his weekly reporter's notebook, executive editor Jason Miller covers why cats and many other similar efforts end up hurting small firms. Jason joins me now. Jason, it sounds like cats is going to the dogs. What happened here?
6: Let's start with what CATS is what the Commerce Department tried to do is actually create this, if you will, innovative approach to small business contracting, to IT services. I mean, Tom, this is a 10-year IT services contract, as you said, as a, a $1.5 billion ceiling, and it's for all things across the IT services spectrum, IT support for CIO office, digital documents and records management, managed service outsourcing, consulting, IT operations and maintenance. As you can see, it's for, for everything under the sun, and what Commerce was trying to do is drive more more business toward small businesses which is exactly what the Biden administration and really every administration Tom, for the last 20 25 years that you and I have been doing this have been talking about and what they've fallen into is the same problem that a, a lot of agencies fall into which is they're beset by protests there's more than a dozen protests now before the court of federal claims and that is of course delaying and frustrating both agency customers within commerce department and the the vendors who are ended up protesting and winning the award
0: so these are post-award but pre-order protests. Fair to say?
6: Absolutely. And and the reason why they're post-award, Commerce made 15 awards back in September and immediately got almost as many protests. And the issue here, Tom, is... Commerce is digging its heels into this protest. They're not taking a half a step back and saying, listen, we made 15 awards and got 12 protests. Maybe something went wrong. Even though commerce may say, hey, we did everything. We, we think we did everything right. Maybe we should take a step back and take corrective action, reevaluate proposals, relook at this. But instead, what they're doing is they're costing small businesses, and I've talked to several over tens of thousands of dollars. One person, Herschel Chandler from IUI, said he's spending upwards of over a hundred thousand dollars in lawyer's fees to protest this because of the feeling if we don't win, we're going to be shut out of commerce for the next decade, and that just, is, it just can't happen for our business. And again, so instead of trying to grow sure. the industrial base, they're actually hurting the industrial base.
0: And what are the protesters upset about specifically?
6: The big issue is the evaluation factor. What Commerce did in their evaluation factor was say, here's a whole bunch of functional areas. Uh, tell us why you're qualified to do this. When the vendors did that and they got basically low technical evaluation skills, they went to their debrief and said, okay, what did we do wrong? They said, well, you didn't demonstrate your ability. You didn't tell us your approach. You just told us you could do it, but you didn't tell us how to do it. And again, talking to several different vendors who are protesting this, they tell me that's not what the section M in the solicitation said. It said, tell us how you are qualified, not what your approach would be. And they're saying, this is just wrong. In black and white, it says, this is what commerce asked for. But in the evaluations, they went in an entire different direction. And on top of that, they limited the page count to 65 pages for the proposal, which is understandable, but there's no way to demonstrate your approach in 65 pages when you're talking about eight or 10 or 12 functional areas. On top of that, Tom, when I talked to other vendors, they said, this has been a hodgepodge effort from the beginning. It looks like 10 different people wrote the solicitation and they just plastered it all together. It had 13 different amendments. It had over 2,100 questions from vendors. It just was not a good procurement from the beginning. And of course, that's why they're now in the midst of of protests.
0: And did they have a pre-solicitation, take in comments, and then issue yet another solicitation? I'm thinking of VA and its T4NG2.
6: They exactly went down that path. They've amendments and industry days and answered questions. And a lot of the questions weren't answered well. I talked to one vendor who said, listen, we kept waiting for them to fix it. We kept waiting for them to clean it up because we saw just how bad it was. I talked to another vendor who said they spent well over $80,000, almost $100,000 on this proposal, and that was three to four times more than normal they would normally spend. Again, for that feeling that, hey, if I don't get on Commerce Cats, I'm going to be shut out of Commerce, and I have been doing a lot of business with Commerce over the years, and I can't get shut out.
0: Does Commerce have other options, such as GSA vehicles, to buy these contracts, buy these services that might already have hundreds of small businesses on contract?
6: That is the big question, and that's the bigger issue, I think, at hand here. Commerce cats is, is maybe a procurement that is frustrating, and maybe it's it's problematic. But really, the bigger issue is why does commerce, and really any agency for that matter, need its own multiple-ward IT contract when you can get it from schedules? You can get it from Polaris. You can get it from 8A Stars. You can get it from the VETS GWAC. You can get it from CIO SP3, small business, soon-to-be CIO SP4. Why are they driving their own procurement vehicles when they already exist? The second issue, Tom, at hand is why are you limiting the number of people on your procurement, knowing that there's this drive to everyone feels like I have to get on this procurement. You're just going to end up in, in protest land for the next year or so. And I think that's the bigger issue at hand. Not that commerce did something right or wrong. That's for the courts to decide. But why do agencies, and again, commerce is one. I can point to DHS and First Source 3 as another example. We can point to several other agencies that have these multiple award IDIQ type contracts. Why do they need their own when there's plenty available on the government-wide scale?
0: And what is the status while these protests, they're in the court of federal claims? Can agencies order against the awards, or is it all kind of stuck?
6: It's all stuck. It's all delayed. It's all been, you know, there's a stay on it. And the court of federal claims is not quick, like the government accountability office is. GAO tends to be, you know, within 100 days we'll make a decision. Court can go on forever. And again, this goes back to, the detrimental effect on small businesses, because not only did commerce take a half a step back and say, listen, we think we did everything right, but we're still going to relook at, we're going to take corrective action. They're digging their heels in. Herschel Chandler, again, told me the administrative record is over 30,000 pages. And Tom, a lot of it, and I talked to Alan Shavakin about this, and Alan Shavakin, the procurement expert from Nicholas Liu, he tells me that the Court of Federal Claims is more expensive, there's more paperwork, and can take longer. And that's going to drive up costs for all these small businesses, including... Including those who won the award, Tom, because they also intervened on the behalf of the agency because they want to keep their award. Again, it goes against everything the Biden administration, the Trump administration, the Obama administration, go all the way back to the Clinton administration has been saying that we got to support small businesses better. And it's no wonder that when you do look at the research and look at the data, the number of small businesses in the, in the federal procurement community is down, down, down over the last five, seven, 10 years. And part of the reason is the frustration and the lack of if you will the contract bundling the these best in class type contracts category management all of that has is having a downward effect on small firms
0: And what about commerce? What's their answer so far?
6: Well, of course, they don't want to comment because this is ongoing litigation. They they can't really say much about CATS specifically. However, Tom, if you look at the commerce's efforts around small business, they are really one of the stalwarts across the federal government. They achieved their goals, their small business goals. 39% was their 2022 goal. They got 50%. Their small disadvantaged goal was 19%. They got 26%. They met all their goals across all socioeconomic categories. And again, it goes back to this is so weird why they're digging their heels and and really not doing what I would say many believe is the right thing, which is taking corrective action, re-looking at these bids, and making sure that they did everything correct.
0: All right, so the claws are out over cats. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks so much. My pleasure, Tom. And be sure to check out his reporter's notebook online now at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, the Agriculture Department promotes new ways to manage and use a very old resource. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Twitter and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Tamman.